you found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Friday, June the 23rd, special edition number 87. What does biblical leadership look like? Part 2. In our last study, we looked at some very powerful verses. We talked about how all things were made by the Word, and without Him, nothing was made. We also saw that the Word is life, and then we saw that the life is the light of men as well. Even today, we still see how the light shines into the darkness, but somehow the darkness doesn't seem to comprehend it. Once again, we dig into some of the word meanings, many cross-references, and we even got a little scientific a couple of times. We feel confident that this is a study all will enjoy. In today's episode, we begin going over the list of qualifications that Paul gave to Timothy regarding the office of a bishop. We explain what a bishop is, and then we started going over those pesky things known as requirements. This study is simply the follow-up to the one we did a couple of weeks ago where we looked at the negative side of church leadership, dictators, and cultic leaders. We look at the positive side of things today, and we talk about how the man who desires to be a leader must live. Trust me, things get pretty interesting when you define some of those terms from the original Greek. This episode may be about leaders, but it is for everyone to listen to, learn from, and to enjoy. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today. I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. We are thrilled to bring you part two of the study that we started two weeks ago concerning biblical leadership. Uh, thrilled is not really the word that explains how I'm feeling. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, after that last episode, hesitant might describe my feelings better than thrilled. Well, why in the world would you be hesitant about doing part two? <laughs> well, after some of the stuff we covered in part one, we might want to ease into this one. Are you having second thoughts as to what we've talked about? No, I guess I'm just a little apprehensive about what we might be getting into today. Oh, so you're worried about what I might say, in other words. Now you're getting the idea. Well, today's going to be spent looking at the requirements of a bishop, and then we're going to take a little while to talk about some of the other forms of biblical leadership and what that should look like. Oh, yeah. I feel much better now. God help us today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I need his help every day, but you may be right on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to begin by reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and give everybody a good idea of what we're going to be looking at. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given hospitality, apt to teach not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. 
For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, when most people look at this, they think only of a pastor, and I realize this is the qualifications of a bishop, but all ministry needs to meet very similar, if not the exact same requirements. And a lot of times when people read through this passage, they tend to only see the man who's desiring the office of a bishop. There's a lot more people involved in this little section that we just read. Hey, why don't you just list all the people mentioned within this setting so we can see a little bit better how the ministry affects more than one person? Okay, well, let me go through it. Number one, you have the man who desires to be a bishop or he desires the office of a bishop. Then you have the man's wife. You have the man's children. The Bible also says the man's house, which would cover anyone and everyone who lives with the minister, whether they are related to him or not. The devil, the people within the church, the people without the church, and then last but not least, God himself. Well, this is proof that the ministry impacts many people, whether in a good or bad way. Well, that's true. And there's been a lot of times that people have been impacted by the ministry in a very good way. There's also been a lot of times when people have been impacted by the ministry in a negative way. And so if a person is living by these requirements, there should be less negative impact than there is positive. So we're going to look at some of these things today. And since I'm focusing more on the pastor in this episode, I want to mention this. There's 19 specific requirements laid out here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 for the man that's desiring the office of a bishop. I knew there were several things listed, but I didn't realize there was 19 things here. Yeah, it's easy to run through that and not really count them and think, yeah, it's probably about 10 or 12 things, but there's actually 19 things, one thing shy being 20. And I don't believe that holds any significance, really. It's just the list that Paul rattled off as he was going through under the inspiration of the Spirit. The first thing that you must have, though, is a man who desires the office of a bishop. We're told that this man must be blameless. He needs to be the husband of one wife. He's to be a vigilant man. This minister is to be a sober man. He's to be of good behavior. He's to be given to hospitality. He needs to be apt to teach. He needs to have patience. He also must rule his own house well. He must have his children in subjection. He must have a good report of those who are without. And he must live in such a way he doesn't fall into the snare of the devil. This is the positive aspects of that man. And there's some negative things that we're told he's not to be. He should not be given to wine. He should not be a striker. He's not to be given to filthy lucre. He shouldn't be easily angered. He's not to be a brawler. He's not to be covetous. Nor is he to be a novice. Wow, what a list. Well, as you can see, there's many things to look at when it comes to the ministry. This just proves how honorable the ministry should be, and it shows how God views the ministry. Can just any man who desires the office of a bishop qualify by meeting these requirements? Is there anything else that necessitates the office of a bishop other than a desire? Well, that's good questions. And Paul taught in Romans that for a man to preach, he must be called and he must be sent by God. So number one, the man must be a minister to be able to do this job of a bishop. For him to be a minister, he must be called of God, he must be sent by God, and he must be doing the work of God. So if he just wants to be a bishop, mm, that's not good enough. But if he has all of the potential and he meets all of the requirements and he's got all of the qualifications within him, 
but he doesn't desire the office of a bishop. He doesn't need that office. Now, Paul, when he taught the Romans for a man to preach, you must be called and sent by God. That gives me a question here. Does Paul assume that Timothy understands this structure? Did Timothy understand what Paul wrote to the church at Rome? Or had he already told Timothy of this? Was that very common knowledge? We also are told by Paul to know them that labor among us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. Let me read that to you. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and to be at peace among yourselves. So it tells us, know them which labor among you, know them that are over you in the Lord, know them that admonish you. And then what are you to do? Esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. So in other words, honor the ministry. And when you honor the ministry, you honor the minister, the one who is doing the work of God. This is good counsel that helps those looking for a minister for their church. That's true. And this scripture also helps the minister form a position of how to use discretion concerning who he uses in the church because he needs to know them that labor among them. Well, Paul didn't give much wiggle room for ministers. <laughs> no, he didn't. And we must keep in mind that these are character traits to look for in a man. This is not a list of duties to be performed by someone in order to qualify. So you're saying that if a man only does these things so he can be put into the office of a bishop, it wouldn't make him qualified? No, if he just started doing these things and stopped doing those things, that doesn't make him qualified, even though he's meeting the requirements per se, because these qualities must be part of the man. If you just all of a sudden stop doing these things and start doing those things, those qualities are not part of you, and so those qualities will not last. If these are the characteristics of the man before he desires the office of a bishop, they will remain within him while he is a bishop. You know, Paul believed that a man who desired the office of a bishop must meet these requirements. I believe that. And, I, and here's another thing I want to throw at you. I don't believe that this list is meant to be seen as an exhaustive list. And what I mean by that is I don't think everything is listed that could be listed. What I mean by that is Paul didn't say a man can't have a living husband and be a pastor or be a bishop. Well, today we know that that's a very real thing that is happening in certain churches. There's transgenders who are pastoring churches. Paul didn't deal with that directly, but we will see in a moment he did deal with it indirectly. And so this is not an exhaustive list. But these are the qualifications Paul listed, and he wanted to make sure every church operated with at least these guidelines. And this isn't a pick-and-choose thing. I think I know what you mean, but could you give us a couple of examples? Well, for one, if you were considering a man for pastor who's the husband of one wife, but he's greedy of filthy lucre, biblically, he's not qualified for the job. If he meets every other requirement, but he's not the husband of one wife, he's still not qualified for that position. So if a man has to meet all these 19 requirements to be qualified, then that doesn't leave very many men to be considered, does it? It really narrows the playing field for sure. It and does. when we get to digging into some of these definitions, I think we're going to see some pretty surprising things. And I'm afraid we're going to see even less people qualified than what we see right here at face value. So this is only in response to one question, but yet it's turning into a lot of information and we're seeing some things that we really need to see. There's a lot of people who never have been taught what the ministry should be, what their job qualifications are, what the requirements are meant to be. And so when we lay this out, 
It may be shocking, maybe surprising to some, but many people will be familiar with it because they know these things, because they read them, they've heard them, they've been taught this, they've heard it preached. So I don't think it's going to come as a shock to everyone, but it may hold a little bit of shock value to a few people. The big problem here is trying to figure out where to begin. Why don't you start by defining what is meant by the term bishop? Okay. Yeah, that's a term that we really don't use in our churches. You never hear anybody talk about, yeah, well, I go to church where bishop so-and-so pastors. Well, a bishop is a spiritual leader. He's a ruler within the church. Some people translate it to mean anything from the pastor of the church to a man who is over several churches, all the way down to a man who is an elder within the local church. What do you think the best definition is? Well, to me, the best definition for bishop is found by defining the Greek word episkopos, which is where it comes from. It's interpreted as one who oversees or an overseer. Uh, matter of fact, let me go to Acts 20 and 28, and we'll see this translated that way here. It's the exact same word, episkopos, and let me read you Acts 20 and 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, that's episcopos or bishops, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So the terms overseers, elders, and bishops are basically interchangeable, right? Yes. They would have been considered the same position back in the times of Paul and Peter and all of that. Yes, all of them, an overseer is a bishop. A bishop can be an elder, and an elder is the bishop, and he is an overseer. All of them are very much interchangeable. When you read that word overseer, if you read the word elder, or you read the word bishop, to us today in our holiness churches, they would all three be more like a pastoral position. All right, Paul says you must have a man who desires the office of a bishop. This tells us several things right off. Oh, really? Sounds like one main thing to me. By the wording, this tells us it's unbiblical for a woman to desire the office of a bishop. It's unbiblical for a woman to be a bishop, a pastor, or an elder in the church because of the wording. Amen. A man must hold this position. True, but it has to be a man who has a desire to hold this position. If the man has no desire for the position, he's not worthy of the position. I never thought this from that angle before. A man who does not desire the job, he's not going to bear the proper burden that the position calls for. This tells us that the man should have the right aspirations, and he needs to have a longing for this office. Could you define what's meant by the term office? <laughs> well, that's a good question, too. Yeah. The word office is very similar to the word that we see for bishop. Bishop is episkopos. The word office is the Greek episkopi. Episkopi simply means position. It's the position that the man holds. Just because you found a man who desires the position of an overseer, this doesn't mean that you found your man. There's a lot of people running around looking for a position. So desire is not really what many men are lacking. You're lacking the requirements in many men today. We need to find a man who meets the requirements, who also has a desire for that position. This position is not just for anyone who has a desire to oversee a church or to hold a position. This is where we get into those painful hindrances that we call qualifications. Yeah, those pisky things sure get in the way of a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> the man who desires the office of a bishop must be blameless. Blameless is defined as one who is irreproachable, one who is above criticism, one who gives no ground for accusation. Oh, boy. You just immediately disqualified everyone I know because I don't know anyone who hasn't been blamed for something. 
well, let me state this right here. We must understand that this can't really be what Paul meant here because even Paul was accused of turning the world upside down, and even some of them said he wasn't much of a preacher. So that can't be what is being meant here. Okay. I know in today's society, no one is above criticism or accusations. Yeah, that's not what Paul meant here because this goes much deeper. I believe the point that Paul was making is if the minister has a bad reputation among people, it discredits the gospel message that he's preaching. That's why it's saying he must be above reproach. That doesn't mean that people won't lie on you. The office of a bishop is honorable. So the man who holds that office should also be an honorable man. God is very concerned, I believe, with how the men that minister conduct themselves. Amen. Second Corinthians 6 and 3 says, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. In other words, preachers, let's not give people the right to talk. Let's not live in such a way people can run down the ministry and yet be saying the truth about us. The man desiring the office of a bishop must be the husband of one wife. And that one little phrase encompasses several things. How many things can you pull out of a statement like that? Okay, let me just try to list a few. The man is not to be an adulterer or one who has multiple wives or women. The man is not to be married to more than one living woman. The man is not to be a fornicator. He's not to be a polygamist having more than one wife at a time. The man is not to be divorced and remarried. The man desiring the office of a bishop must not have a concubine. Oh, wow. Just by the wording that Paul used, we can understand several of the things about a man being the husband of one wife. That's correct, but there's still yet a little more. The position of a bishop can never be filled by a woman. You have a good point for how could a woman be the husband of one wife. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and this tells us something else. The office of a bishop cannot be held by a homosexual. If the man is married to or living with another man, he doesn't meet those qualifications because he doesn't have a wife. This man cannot be a transgendered person nor anyone confused about their sexual identity. Well, this also disqualifies all of the people who can't define the biology of the genders as well. That's right. And I understand. I'm going to back up for just a moment. I'm not saying that every man that pastors has to have a wife. If a man is over a church pastoring it and his wife dies, I don't believe he has to resign the church. Okay. Right. I believe that that is just one of those things that happens in life. It doesn't mean that he's no longer married. So he has to resign the position. If a man's wife died and you were considering him for a pastor and he's by himself, it's much better to have a wife, especially if you're going to be doing any counseling to young women or any women for that matter. But this is talking about in the ministry, you need to only be married one time to one spouse at a time. Amen. The next qualification for bishop is that the bishop must be vigilant. That means he needs to be sober. He needs to be aware. He needs to be calm, and he needs to be circumspect. The bishop or overseer should be aware of what's going on. I believe he needs to know what's going on in the world and in the church especially. I don't believe that he can live as a person who has his head in the sand. The modern-day minister is the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets and judges. That's right. And these men were set as watchmen on the wall in the Old Testament. Yeah. The job requirement of the watchmen on the wall was to cry out and warn the people of every attack of the enemy. Yeah. A man that has no clue what's going on in the world would not make a good candidate. No, he wouldn't. A man who doesn't have any idea what's going on in the church or within his family is also disqualified. If this man sees what is going on, but then he fails to warn the people, 
He's not qualified to hold that position either. Do you think it would make the inhabitants of the city mad if the watchman cried out that an enemy battalion was fastly approaching? It really wouldn't matter if it did because they need to know this information. Well, that's right. For a watchman to worry that his message might upset the people would be absurd. And it's just as absurd for the minister to worry about making people mad when he cries out against sin or against the enemy that's coming into the church. Interestingly enough, the word vigilant comes from the old phrase to hold a vigil. When people hold a vigil, they keep things calm, they faithfully pray, and they stay awake in the midst of trouble and turmoil. My goodness, if we ever needed preachers to be wide awake, it's right now. Yes, it is. The next qualification we come to is that the man desiring the office of a bishop must be sober. The man of God is not to be a drunkard. The man of God is to be self-controlled. The bishop is to be a teetotaler, one who never indulges in alcohol. He's to be clear-headed and clear-minded. I believe the man of God should be serious, but especially while in the pulpit. I agree with that. The church doesn't need a professional comedian. They need someone who's willing to go to war with the devil himself for the souls of the people who have been entrusted to him. Yes, sir. The man who's desiring the office of a bishop is to have good behavior. You know, to me, this is very common sense stuff, but there must be more to this than that. There is. Good behavior is defined as to live right, to conduct oneself in an appropriate way. He's to behave himself, conduct himself in look, in his tone, in his dress. He's to be without disorder. He's to not do things in excess. He's not to be harsh or mean. He's not to be lax, but he's to be a modest man. All of that is the definition of good behavior. Okay. Well, that now makes more sense knowing these definitions. Yes. And so let's break this down a little bit to help us understand how far reaching this is. The man of God is to conduct himself in a way that's appropriate, meaning that he isn't unfriendly with people, but also that he isn't too friendly with women or anybody else that would make someone think something against him. The man of God will hold himself in such a way he's respected by all. And the phrase good behavior can also be interpreted as to be respectable. Well, the man of God should be respected, but to gain respect, you must live respectably. That's true. This man should never be given to excess or deal harshly with people. He needs to know how to conduct himself at all times around all people and in all situations. (laughs) The man who desires the office of a bishop must be given to hospitality. To be given to hospitality means to be friendly and to treat people well. It does, and I know that it seems that this phrase would be hard not to understand, and most of us probably feel like we know everything it could mean. But to be given to hospitality also includes housing, visiting ministers, taking care of them and their families. It probably includes feeding the hungry. It includes making people feel welcome around you. It includes making people feel welcome at church. Ouch. I never thought of hospitality in that light. Yeah, well, the man of God is to treat people as Christ did when he was here in the flesh. Here's something I want to tell you. If the minister you're considering has very few friends, that should be an alarm to the congregation who's considering him as pastor. If nobody likes him, there's a good chance you may not either. (laughs) If the man has no heart to help people, how can he say he's a minister? How can he say that he's there to work, to be given to hospitality? A bishop should be outgoing. He should be welcoming and he should be approachable by everyone and at all times. The man desiring the office of a bishop must be apt to teach. Now, this comes from the Greek word didasko, which means to be skillful in teaching 
and it means to possess the ability to instruct others. So the bishop must be skillful in teaching, right? That's what it says. What happens when you have a minister that hates to read or doesn't believe in studying? A biblical church should never consider such a man. That is contrary to Scripture itself. One who is apt to teach will be someone who understands Scripture, someone who can explain Scripture, and then take that Scripture and point it all to Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. This episode is starting to go the way part one did now. (laughs) I I didn't say it was going to be an easy one, but I did say it was going to be a good one. (laughs) I also believe Paul was saying that the minister should be skillful in refuting false doctrines. If you don't study, how do you know what you believe? And if you don't study, how can you refute that which is false? If a minister cannot teach, how can he perform the office of a bishop? This man of God will teach in more than one way. He'll teach the word, he'll teach the gospel, and he'll teach sound doctrine in the pulpit. But he'll also teach by example, which is really the most efficient teaching. Since the bishop is an example to the flock, everything he does, he's teaching them something. God help us to teach righteously. And let me throw this in here as a little add-in. It appears that Paul added this to further dismiss women from the ministry, pulling from what he said back in 1 Timothy 2 and 9 through 12. Let me read you this. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamed faceness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to assert authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now I want to point out two things right here. Number one, it should go without saying if a woman is not to teach, and the bishop must be able to teach, apt to teach, this would definitely disqualify a woman from that position. Now, I want you to notice something else. I read the qualifications of the ministry in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. This is 1 Timothy 2 and 9 through 12 that I just read you. There's only verse 13, 14, and 15 that separates this from the reading that I just read to you. When Paul wrote this as a letter, This was part of that that went into the ministry speech. So he is definitely dealing with that which should be in the churches as minister, as teacher, as deacon. And he goes on and he excludes women from teaching, from preaching. And then he goes in and excludes them from being deacons. Well, if you keep going through this list, you're going to upset a lot of people. Well, it may do it, but I'm not the one who set these requirements or made these qualifications. God himself did. I know a lot of people say, well, but the Lord called me through his spirit. The spirit will never contradict the word. Well, you know, that's true, but you are the one laying it all on the line, though. Well, I may be, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul said. (laughs) So now, the man desiring the office of a bishop is not to be given to wine. Now, this command is found in both testaments, the old and the new. Let me read you the one from Leviticus 10 and 9. Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. This is to the priesthood. And he says, if you're guilty of drinking strong drink and you come into the temple to work for God, you'll be struck dead. That's pretty serious. Ephesians 5 and 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. Drinking leads to drunkenness. And then drunkenness leads to recklessness. Recklessness is the very opposite of self-control and temperance, which is what ministers must have. So if drinking will make you reckless, 
you can't do it. If drinking will make you drunk, then you can't do it. If drinking is bad and leads to bad, just don't drink strong drink. That simple. When a person is given to wine, it leads them to be in a stupor. It makes them very dull-minded. They have foggy thought processes. They're not able to think straight. Ministers need to have a clear mind, a sharp mind, in order to battle heresies and teach the truth. You need a clear mind and a clean mind when you get up and try to proclaim the gospel message. I've noticed that a man who is given to wine will be given to many other things, too. Yes, sir, because drunkenness leads to many other sins. Yeah, when when one is drunken, they're more susceptible to loose behavior, mainly because their senses are impaired by the alcohol. Amen. That is so true. As a matter of fact, the Greek word here, let me let me touch on that for a moment. It's paraonus. Okay, paraonus means to be addicted to wine. This word is only used here and in Titus 1 and 7 in the Bible. Let me read you this. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not be addicted to wine, not given to filthy lucre. All right, there's a problem because when you get used to drinking it, you begin to be addicted to it. So are you saying that the sin is in the addiction part? No, but that's where it leads to. If you partake of it and you partake of it, after a while it becomes a habit. And how long does it take for a habit to become an addiction? Not very long. The man desiring the office of a bishop must not be a striker. Okay, please define this for me because I've heard this used against people standing on a picket line while the union workers are on strike. Yeah, I've heard that too, especially down south where we're from. People would say, you're not supposed to strike on a picket line. You're not supposed to do that. A striker describes a fighter, a bully, a combative person, somebody who's violent. Ministers are not to be a striker with their hands and go into fistfights, but they're not to be a striker with their tongue either. This one word right here carries a boatload of information with it. A minister is to fight for the truth. He is to fight for what is right. But the minister is never to be a fighter of men. You can fight the heresy that men teach, but you're not to jump up and bust somebody in the nose just because they don't do what you want them to do. The man of God is to stand strong for the word, but to never be a bully in or out of the pulpit. This goes back to part one a couple of weeks ago then. It really does. The minister only has the authority that God has given unto him. He's not to abuse the privilege that God granted unto him in being Lord over God's heritage. He's never to purposely provoke people to anger just to see what they'll do or what they'll say. But on the same token, he will preach the word regardless, even if it makes the whole church upset because it is the gospel. The man of God is to never have a combative personality fussing more than he discusses. He should try to resolve matters with the word, never with his fist. You know, he's to be a model of Christianity, portraying Jesus to a lost world. Amen. He's not to handle his problems like sinners do by resorting to violence. And that's the way that the world handles things. If you don't like it, I'll just knock your teeth down your throat or I'll take a gun and blow your brains out and we'll be done with it. That should never be the thinking of a man of God. No, sir. We're running low on time. So the last one that I think we have time for is to look at the very next one, which is the one desiring the office of a bishop is to not be greedy of filthy lucre. This is tied together with those who are covetous and those who are lovers of money. The Bible teaches us to be a lover of men and never to be a lover of things. Being full of greed is one of the main characteristics of false teachers, according to 1 Timothy 6 and 5. Let me look that up real quick because I 
I think that will be very worthwhile looking at. Let me see right here. Yeah. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. Yes, that's the false teacher and they're greedy of gain. They're wanting that which they can get. But he goes on in the next verse and says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Someone who's overly concerned with money is disqualified from the office of a bishop. Did you hear that? That was all the preachers falling down when I said that. Yeah. <laughs> I think half of them passed out. No, a minister who is in love with money should raise a red flag and sound an alarm to all people who are considering him to be a pastor. You know, if a minister is guilty of the love of money, he has the root of all evil in him. This means that there is no limit to how low he's willing to stoop. That's a very valid point. It is. What would he not do for money? If he loves money enough, he might just sell out his preaching to the highest bidder. What if he's got somebody with pretty deep pockets, as the old saying is, in his congregation, and that guy doesn't want him to preach on, let's say, adultery? And so he gives him a lot of offering. It's going to put a lot of pressure on that man. If he loves that money good enough, he'll just leave alone that adultery stuff. But if he wants to preach the word of God, he's going to have to say to that man, whether through just telling him straight like it is or through the ministry of the word. I don't care what you give. I don't care if you don't give. I'm going to tell you the truth. He may tell people what they want to hear just to pad his own pockets, but that's not a man of God. When you transliterate that from the Greek where it says filthy lucre, it's defined as dishonest gain. Now think about that, getting money dishonestly. Let me go to 1 Peter 5 and 2 because there's a big, big connection point right here. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. When you look that phrase up again, right here, same setting, dishonest gain. Take constraint over the people of God, but don't do it for dishonest gain. When a minister doesn't care where he gets his money from, nor how he gets his money, just as long as he gets his money, he's greedy of filthy lucre, and he's not worthy of the office of a bishop. If he knows that you're making your living bootlegging and he accepts your money, that's dishonest gain. If he knows that you're down there selling drugs and you're paying tithe to him, that's dishonest gain because you're getting that in an illegal manner. I know people say, well, the devil's had it long enough. Give it to me. Well, I want to tell you something. When somebody has to steal and be guilty of extortion to give you money, something's wrong. If I were to rob a bank and then give it to you and you take it, you have now been partners in crime with me. That is being a man who is guilty of dishonest gain. What could someone do with all the people who try to throw a shade on all preachers about being money hungry? Well, first off, all preachers are not money hungry. I know several men of God that they preach the word regardless. It doesn't matter. We know that people are always going to talk. They're going to say that, oh, he's just in it for the money. And, you know, every time there's a guy that has a $43 million jet or helicopter put out as a prayer request, y'all pray for me or God's going to kill me if I don't get $7 million, as Oral Roberts said years ago, or as the man just in recent times said, y'all pray, please send in donations. God said, I need to get this jet, and it's only $43 million. That man's in it for the money, no doubt. But because of men like that, other people are going to look at every minister and say, well, they're all the same. They're all guilty of that same thing. And they feel the same way about all preachers. Every preacher is not the same. Well, I tell you, I believe there are still men of God out there who preach for God and not because of money. That's right. I know there is. 
Vance Habner said this many years ago, and I'm going to close with this statement. There's still a few preachers around who will preach the truth for the right price. That's right. (laughs) No, that was a joke at the end. But regardless, there are still some men of God that are willing to preach the gospel no matter what it costs them, no matter where it takes them, no matter how much they have to suffer, they're willing to stand for Jesus Christ. And I honor those men that do that. Amen to all the ministers that are living right and doing right and preaching the gospel. Yes. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news and current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until the next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Monday, June the 26th, for episode number 122, The Light Had a Witness. done so much for me, this I know. Will it change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven I want to go. I want to go. I want to go to that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.